Crossroads is a church for people journeying toward thriving faith in Jesus. We covenant to help people move people through our four objectives. By helping you, your neighbors, and friends discover Jesus by being a vibrant worshiping community that is a trusted presence in greater Baltimore. By making it simple to belong to our church family. By assisting you to identify your unique role to play in God's story and by offering support as you develop a personal faith that functions and serves in today's world. This is our mission. Together, we will help many people, including you and your family, flourish through life's crossroads. Hello and welcome to Through Life's Crossroads. This is Pastor Tim Brooks here and I'm with Pastor Jake Roberts. Hey Tim, how's it going? Pretty good. How are good. you doing today? Doing good. Doing good on this lovely Maryland sloggish wet weather day. Yeah, it's going to be a week, I think. <laughs> yes. 60 this weekend, this last weekend, and 30s. Yeah. Welcome to Maryland. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Well, this week we are talking about the third week of Advent, which is the week of joy. Yeah, I got joy like a fountain. <laughs> I remember I songs like that. Uh, yeah, so joy is such an interesting concept because uh, I, I think we all know that definitionally it's different than happiness. Yeah, it's the thermostat. And depending, like, yeah, I think functionally we all understand the difference between joy and happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yet um, I, I think very few people um, want to put in the work for joy, <laughs> yep. and they want to experience external bouts of happiness that make them feel something within their soul, right? Yep. And so um, so we talked about that a whole lot. We have all sorts of content out there, whether in the sermon or uh, Message Monday, where you could check out a little bit how we talked about that. But we invited in a uh, professor who is a, a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene, serving at a seminary for the Wesleyan Church. Bit of a traitor, but we love him. Yeah, absolutely. And he teaches worship. And so this whole thing about uh, preparing and leading through Advent is kind of center-center mm -hmm. to, um, to even his academic discipline. He talks to us about a lot of things, including joy. But uh, what stood out for you as people lean in to listen to this? Yeah, so as he was speaking, um, he brought up that Typically and historically, Advent is a time of repentance, a time of drawing near. And even some of the early Advent texts that we use is one of them is John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of like repent. Mm -hmm. And you don't really hear much about that in Christmas time. Um, it's specifically an Advent season. Um, and I didn't, I didn't hear about that growing up uh, we didn't celebrate that um we had wreath and candles we but it really was advent was a preparation for christmas christmas is coming and it was about like in this season we can have peace joy because christmas is coming but it wasn't ever about preparing for christ's return and being ready being repentant um so that's that stuck out to me yeah. and it gave me a pause to think about some things. Yeah, and I, I appreciated too how he, he tied Lent, which is a different time, but mm -hmm. leading into Easter into this, and how how Christians have for 2,000 years set out this time leading into Easter and Christmas yeah. 
which are to be huge, exciting, celebratory moments. This is supposed to be pure joy to yeah. celebrate these things. But that in the weeks leading into both of them, we have this time of taking stock internally mm -hmm. of things that are right and things that are off kilter in our relationship with God. And that preparation for God's big activities, which includes one big activity that we haven't seen yet, the second coming. Yep. It, these big activities that we celebrate that have happened give us an opportunity to become a prepared, repentant people and become the church that, that God wants to come back and be with eternally. And um, it's just really, really good, I think, as we lead into Christmas um, this year, any year, to do this work of repentance, of, of taking stock, uh, of, of looking internally and saying, what is what is not right? What is off about me? Mm -hmm. I find that I'm much better at pointing out what's off and wrong with everyone else. Yeah, I, I like that he, he does point out that repentance is an individual, yet also it's a corporate act. And when I think of repentance as a corporate act, I think of someone jumping up in the middle of a service saying, yeah, I did X, Y, Z, but that's not what he's getting at or anything. But I think repentance is also very deeply tied to some systemic symptoms that we see today of people in church, leaders, when they are found out to be wrong or something comes to light, that they're unable to admit fault, mm -hmm. that they're unable to say, I did X, Y, Z wrong, I'm sorry. And then a pathway of restitution can be had. But I think a great symptom of why we see that is because the practice of repenting, whether individually or corporately, isn't really a part of our practices. Yeah. And and I also I also wonder if we get off on track this just a little bit, <laughs> that that when we see big famous pastors having giant tumbles and falls, yeah, if there was an ability to repent of the things that led to the big mistakes, if these things could have been headed off before before it became what it was. Right. Yeah. Before abuse, before affair, before before the 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 dark night of the soul within their life began to have tangible effects yeah. on the way they treated others. If there was a place in which the church allowed for repentance before the big sin, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I just wonder how much safer of a place we would be in general. That's a good question. Yeah. And there's no answer for that right now. But Advent does give us a chance to do some exploring of saying what's off kilter. Yeah. And, and hopefully taking stock before the big action happens in our life. Yeah gives us an opportunity to miss some of those bigger sins that could really take us down. Definitely. And I know a lot of people in repentance, they're afraid of um, not being accepted. But it's funny that when we are in a state where we repent of what we've done, um, and there's grace upon grace upon grace, and we find out that God is even better than what we thought God was. Absolutely. Every single time. Amen. Well, lean on in to listen to Dr. Brandon Hancock, professor at Wesley Seminary, share his experience with worshiping in Advent, why it's meaningful practice to him. And he even gives us some neat little ideas of how to engage pop culture at the end and, and some ideas of, of uh, things that you may have watched or could watch and how to engage them in a way of thinking through Advent themes. Enjoy the listen.
Welcome back to Through Life's Crossroads. This week, as we're looking at the third week of Advent, thinking about uh, the issue and um, and really uh, competency that God gives us joy, I've invited a good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Dr. Brandon Hancock, to come and speak with us about Advent and joy and all of these things. Brandon, how are you doing? I'm good, brother. It's good to be with you. All right. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you and I got to know each other years and years ago by uh, pastoring in the same part of Ohio. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't really grow up with each other, but had some similar uh, past experiences and uh, about the same age. And so we've been friends ever since. But could you tell the people listening to this podcast just a little bit about, uh, about what it is that you do now and how you got there? Yeah, sure thing. Um, and thanks for having me and greetings to all of you who might be listening. And thanks for the opportunity to speak into your lives in this um, this important time of the year. Uh, well, I guess no matter when you're listening. But uh, I, I currently teach at Wesley Seminary, which is the seminary of the Wesleyan Church. Uh, I'm a Nazarene elder. And so I also am the, uh, the worship pastor at our local Nazarene church here in Marion, Indiana, which is a little farm town kind of midway between Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, um, about an hour from each of those cities, uh, sort of out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, I've been in uh, a full-time uh, teaching role at Wesley Seminary for about six years now, six and a half years. Um, so I'm on loan to one of our, our sister denominations, the Wesleyan Church. My wife grew up Wesleyan, so we don't mind that too much. I kind of stole her away to the Nazarenes when we met and married at Trevecca Nazarene University. And, um, and now we're, we're on loan back to the, the Wesleyans. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I grew up as a Nazarene pastor's kid. My, my dad, uh, is pastor has pastored in the Nazarene church from, for my whole life and still, still does. Um, his name's Mike Hancock and you probably, uh, there's a good chance if you're hanging around Nazarenes very much, you're going to run into somebody named Hancock and, uh, they're all either my uncles or cousins or aunts or <laughs> one of my grandparents. Uh, my grandpa, John, uh, was district superintendent and uh, was a, a leader at the denominational level for what, what we now call NYI, but what used to be NYPS, Nazarene Young Persons Society. Young Persons Society. That's what, that's what the youths like to be called, right? The youths, yes. <laughs> and so... Uh, that's that's kind of my my roots. I'm a pretty dyed in the wool Nazarene, even though I'm I'm teaching for the the Wesleyans, and and we we like to make lots of jokes about how you know the Nazarenes talk to, talk about the Wesleyans being one of their sister denominations, but the Wesleyans seem to always refer to Nazarenes as their as their cousins. It's like they want to have a little more distance there for some reason. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> well, hey, the the first time I think that you and I were ever in a room together was um, the power dynamics were way off for sure because I was a uh, just graduated from high school, not quite 18 year old, attending the Nazarene Conference NYC. And um, my, my future college roommate, who's also from Georgia and a uh, pastor's kid, uh, told me that the band on stage, he knew they were called Plaid and they used to play at Trevecca whenever he would go there for a youth event. And I thought, wow, this uh, this band's pretty good. They sound they sound pretty awesome. And it turns out, um, I found out years later that you were the front man on stage that day. 
<laughs> well, that's true. That's my other, uh, my other, I guess, secret identity uh, these days is that I was uh, the, the front man, singer, and guitarist in an epically underrated Christian rock band of the late 90s uh, and early 2000s. We were called Plaid, and we, uh, we did one album as Plaid with a, a small Christian label, and then we had to change our name. We, then we, uh, we, when we disbanded, we were called Downpour because there was a British techno duo that was called Plaid and owned the rights to that name, and they were on Sony Records, and Sony pays a lot more uh, uh, intimidating lawyers than our little indie label could afford. Uh, <laughs> but we had the privilege of playing at, at Nazarene General Assembly and at the Nazarene Youth Con Conference in, uh, in Toronto in 99. That would have been right, Tim? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and we got to open up, I guess, for Audio Adrenaline that night, who were some of our heroes. So that was a pretty cool experience. So I actually, uh, I started out at Trevecca Nazarene Uni University as a, as a music major. And uh, my freshman year, we, we signed a record deal and the, the band that I had started in high school that was still together in college. And we went into the studio and recorded an album. And I actually dropped out of school for a little while and uh, just did the music thing full time. And when I came back, I, I ended up graduating with a, a degree in English literature and a minor in music. So I, I like to joke that, you know, I kind of got the like the two most useless degrees that you can probably get. <laughs> In college, not an English ed degree where I could go on and teach or anything like that. Just English lit, you know, studied and wrote a lot of poetry, poetry and uh, and and music and uh, then went to grad school uh, and my wife and I met at Trevecca, like I mentioned, her name's Gloria and she was a music major as well and is a singer and um, we married in 2001 and moved to Glasgow, Scotland in 2003 uh, for me to pursue graduate studies in uh, in literature, theology, and the arts. And so the University of Glasgow had a, a program that was really interesting to me because of how I could bring together some of those interests in an inter interdisciplinary way uh, in literature, theology, and the arts. And so I ended up doing master's and doctoral degrees there before moving back to the States in 2007 and uh, entering full-time ministry. And so uh, I started pastoring, uh, serving as a worship pastor, 2007 in Ohio, and that's when Tim and I met. It was probably 2008, summer of spring or summer of 2008, probably was when we would have met and uh, started our friendship. And I was at that church for about seven years before coming to my present position at Indiana Wesleyan at Wesley Seminary, where I teach worship and practical theology, and also serve as assistant dean in kind of a part-time capacity. That's awesome. All of that story winds together to uh, to point to probably my favorite part of you, and that is how you are at the same time just traditional and square as can be with just this like interwoven kind of rebellion <laughs> that never really turns you into a rebel. But like, you know, you didn't you didn't go to uh, NTS like good little boys and girls from Trebekah. You went to Scotland, right? You know, like you didn't you didn't finish Trebekah in four years like a good Nazarene pastor's kid. You went and toured as a rock musician and played the Air Canada Center before coming back to graduate. Like there's just just these little tweaks, like never never really bad, never really breaking the rules, but just just a little bit of rebellion. <laughs> I suppose so. I've never thought of it like that, but I, I can't deny what you're saying. <laughs> I wonder how we can tie that into this conversation about Advent. About well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely some rebel rebellion tied into Advent, right? The, uh, the world is living at one pace and Advent calls us back to a different pace. 
Yeah. And, um, one of the, one of the things that, uh, we've been talking about through this whole month and, and something that I think you'll contribute to greatly is, is talking about the shift that, um, our church at Crossroads is making, but, but really I think, um, many churches, uh, you look around the church, the Nazarene and our publishing house is putting out annually an Advent devotional. And that stuff didn't happen in the church of the Nazarene I grew up in. Um, I imagine it probably didn't in the church of the Nazarene you grew up in. seems that most people in our church, my church, I, I don't know about yours in Indiana, who grew up in the sort of um, the holiness tradition of um, Methodism, Wesleyanism, Nazarenism, or, or broadly the evangelical church, um, really talked about December as Christmas time. There was big parties and musicals and plays and, and busy, 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 busy. And there's the, this renewed verve for Advent. And um, I, I just wonder, like, uh, is, is that your story as well as people we've been interviewing have been? And if so, if there's been a shift to move away from the busyness of Christmas time, not that December isn't busy often for people, but, but to more of this spiritual practice of Advent through the season, what was that like for you and what drew you to it? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely share your experience growing up as a, as a pastor's kid in the Nazarene church. I, I remember us always doing the wreath, right? So like we always, it seems like part of the decor of Christmas that always took place right after Thanksgiving, the, you know, usually the ladies of the church would redecorate and they'd get out all the garland and lights and stuff and redecorate the sanctuary. And the Advent wreath was always part of that. And we would do the readings and we would light the candles but we would also just sort of through the whole season, like you said, it was just kind of the Christmas season. We would, we would think of it as Advent and Christmas just almost synonymously, yeah, right? Yeah. And sing all the Christmas songs about the angels and go tell it on the mountain. You know, we would just be singing those songs from the first Sunday in December, or in some cases, the last Sunday in November, because the first Sunday of Advent sometimes starts in November, right after Thanksgiving. And, um, so the, the wreath was familiar and doing kind of readings, some kind of focus on the prophetic texts um, was all there. Uh, but there was, I, I don't think that the themes of, of like waiting and anticipation and preparation um, were clear to me until college probably. Um, and I think maybe it's hard to put my finger on like what the shift was for me. I mean, you know, lots of things happen during college and, you know, you take a, especially at a small Christian school, you know, you take a religion class that's a gen ed course or whatever. And they tell you to go visit a, you know, a, an Episcopal church or a Catholic church or something uh, during the semester and write about your experience in another tradition. So maybe I went to an Episcopal service for, you know, an, an Advent service, or maybe we had something on campus. I can't really put my finger on what it, what it was that began to unlock those additional themes. I do remember one of my professors, Steve Hoskins, uh, who still teaches at Treveca and is, you know, some, somewhat well-known amongst Nazarenes, um, being involved in a student-led um, Advent service on campus and, um, and talking about Advent being a season of waiting and uh, having a really well-written homily uh, related to that that sort of um, started to connect some of the dots for me. Um, but even that, um, that was kind of phase one of getting a bigger or more expansive, I think, uh, 
understanding of Advent because even then I still don't think it's been until, um, I don't know. I don't even, I'm not even sure I, I, that this clicked for me when I was in my doctoral program and I was studying, um, worship and the history of worship and sacramental theology and liturgy and liturgical theology. And so I, you know, I've, I've immersed myself in that world and I've done a lot of reading and research about the Christian calendar. Um, but I think it's even been more recent than that, that it began to click that there's this whole theme as well of, of the second coming and looking ahead to, you know, as we remember Christ's first coming as a baby that we're anticipating his second coming as well. So that eschatological theme, that theme that looks ahead to, to the final things. Um, I'm not sure that that really clicked until maybe sometime in the last decade uh, for me and probably more to do with my own practice, like my practitioner side as a worship leader in a local church and thinking, how can we continue to kind of go deeper in our understanding of what this season is about because this, and uh, this is as good time as any to make one of my, my favorite jokes that I like to make at this time of year. And it's, it's this, that I'm far less concerned in our culture about the war on Christmas than I am about the war on Advent. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And and I hope nobody's made that joke yet on your podcast, but like, no, that's a fresh joke. That's I, I, I think that that's really the, the one that bothers me when I think about, when I think about what we experience as Christians in kind of Western uh, capitalist societies where, you know, com- commercialism and consumerism is, is such a, a kind of driving force in how we organize our lives, you know, and we all kind of get annoyed that, you know, the Christmas decorations all come out like right after Halloween now, you know, or if not sooner, you know, um, I read on Facebook that it was okay to decorate after Halloween in 2020 because 2020 is 2020. So I think this year it was okay to decorate in November. (laughs) But it seems to be less anger this year. Yeah, maybe. Um, But the, the, and, and, and that's not to say that there aren't some cultural tendencies that we need to kind of be at least cautious about and aware of when it comes to to Christmas as well, the tendency of our culture to make it all about, you know, giving gifts and about our children and our families, you know, like that those are the priorities of the season. Um, And the way that, of course, that, you know, that Black Friday and everything that follows drives the bottom line of businesses that are going to, you know, end the year in the black, Um, you know, we we should be aware of and a bit wary of, I think, some of those tendencies to, to focus on something other than the nativity of Christ <laughs> at Christmas time. But within the church, I'm, I've become far more concerned about our tendency to just skip over Advent and just careen towards Christmas from the beginning of Advent and not take the time to um, experience this journey of waiting and anticipation and so as a worship leader, for instance, like I, I've tried to, you know, slowly and gently um, teach and reacclimate the congregations that I've led over the years um, to understanding that, like, I know you want to sing Christmas songs on the first Sunday of December because the, the sanctuary is all decorated for Christmas, but I'm going to make you wait because that's part of what this season is about, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it cuts across so many of our, our, of our cultural narratives. But even in, in our 
you know, concern about the war against Christmas. What I think is great about celebrating Advent is that we really are fighting back against that war against Christmas Mm -hmm. in doing things like that, in making ourselves wait, in making ourselves be patient. Because Christmas uh, came as a fairly uncelebrated, unprepared, Un, unconcerning moment in Bethlehem, right? I mean, like, had the angels not come and proclaimed that the Savior was born, uh, this is this is about as unspectacular a story as you can ever find. Right. A couple of peasants have a uh, a virgin birth in a manger, mm-hmm. and. No one was celebrating, like no one was waiting. And in fact, quite the opposite. It seems that most of the people around were pretty mad at God, right? There was a lot of lament and frustration. They're off doing this taxation stuff, serving Rome, longing for this to all end. Can you imagine um, Joseph taking Mary across the country to go back to his hometown to do a census that isn't even for their own king. It's for these know-nothings halfway across the world. Yeah. She's pregnant. They're doing all this. This is, a, this is an un, unspectacular story that didn't involve a month's worth of pomp and circumstance. Right. It kind of right. happened. And, yeah. um, it, man, I, I get really, really nervous um, personally, not as a pastor, but personally. I get really nervous then when I take these themes of the second coming, like you were talking about, and begin to think, man, um, these Israelites weren't idiots. I mean, they knew their Bible mm-hmm. and they just missed what God was doing. Like Jesus showed yeah. up and they weren't ready, right? Yeah, and who and who were the ones that caught it? Like these lowly shepherds, right? Yeah. And these weirdos that practiced another religion entirely that like traveled, you know, that like we're astrologers and yeah. had, no, yeah. had no background in the religious tradition into which Jesus was delivered. You know? Absolutely. And the people who were in the religious tradition said, Hey, um, there's no room in the inn, but outdoors uh, in the trough, like you could use that if you'd yeah. like. <laughs> right. And so I get really nervous. Like if the insiders missed it the first time, yeah. Um, like without intent in my life, without a space like Advent that demands patience, that demands um, waiting, that demands listening and imagining what the signs of God's work are, like, am I at risk of missing the second coming? Now, all the narratives in the scripture seem like it's going to be loud and boisterous, right? (laughs) Like trumpets and all this kind of stuff. So I don't want to overplay my metaphor, but but I do get nervous that if I don't do something in my life to practice these things of Advent, will I become unaware of what God is doing because I'm so busy practicing my religion, like these really great Jews were doing in the first century, and yeah. even actively, like at least in their dialogue with one another, anticipating that God's Messiah was going to come. Right. And so yeah. this is one of the things that I love about Advent is that it creates within me this short little season, remembering what it was like waiting for Jesus's birth so that I don't fall into the same traps that our brothers and sisters from the Jewish faith 2,000 years ago missed when God came near, when Emmanuel became real. Right, 
Right. And this is where, I mean, the, I'll, if, I, if I may zoom out even a little bit more into some of the trends that I've noticed in, in our Nazarene tradition, at least in my lifetime. I mean, I'm 41, grew up as a pastor's kid in the church through the 80s and 90s all the way to the present, you know, sang out of the old worship and song hymnal in the 80s. And, you know, and which is cool because you go back to that and you see like, oh, there were Advent readings in here. And the Apostles' Creed is in here. And, there, you know, there's, there, there are signs that like, this isn't all brand new, all this kind of recovery of some of the more historical or liturgical elements um, that, that granted when I was a kid, you know, would have seemed a little, maybe a little too Catholic or something like that. Like, oh, we don't do Ash Wednesday. We don't, you know, the Catholics do all that, like fish on Fridays and Lent and all, the, you know, give up chocolate for Lent. And, you know, we don't, we're Nazarenes, we don't do that. And, and it's been interesting to see a, a renewed interest in that, uh, or maybe even a kind of discovery for the first time amongst uh, a lot of Nazarenes for some of those liturgical traditions. Um, and so, you know, I want to at least briefly make the connection to, since a lot of churches have discovered the value of, um, of Lent, of the Lenten season leading up to Holy Week and Easter as a kind of a season of confession and repentance and preparation for uh for holy week and for easter and our celebration of the rec resurrection that there's a sense historically in which advent functions as a kind of uh, a parallel to lent it's kind of a mini lent it's another season of repentance uh, and preparation that happens leading up to the other major feast of the christian calendar or the or the you know the christian seasons the Feast of the Nativity, Christmas, the Feast of the Resurrection, Easter, and both of them are preceded by this period where we're really called to look inward to our, the condition of our hearts, uh, to, to engage in practices of confession and of repentance, um, so that, you know, at, at least during the Advent season and Christmas time, we're singing things like, let every heart prepare him room, you know. Well, how do I do that? How do I engage in that during that the those weeks that lead up to the feast of the nativity yeah. um, and that's kind of the same thing i'm doing during the the season of lent where i'm looking to you know how can i draw closer to to god how can i let the holy spirit continue to do transformative work in my heart and in my life and and i and i have to say that growing up nazarene i i think one of the reasons that we struggled with this is that as a holiness people we're not always real comfortable with confession right we we, we feel like well, the goal is a sanctified life where we where we can live free of the grip of sin in our lives. And if we've if we've experienced that, then what do we have to confess, right? Um, and I think you know that that's a valid question and something that as a as a pastor as a theologian that I think you know I need to think about and 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 help people understand why you know why would you why what is the value of confession if you don't believe that you are bound to, you know, sin every day and word, thought, and deed, like some, some other theological traditions might believe. Um, and I think there are several things that are still valuable about confession. Um, I mean, I, in the most basic level, I like to remind uh, any, anyone under the sound of my voice that, um, that we, we're never off the hook of praying the way Jesus taught us to pray, which includes forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so there is that, that prayer of confession that's built into the Lord's prayer. Uh, there's also a sense in which confession is a corporate 
act, right? And so that I, it, when, I, when we confess as a church our, our sins, it's not simply me confessing my individual uh, sins and, and transgressions, but that we are acknowledging that we are all sinners in need of a savior which is really the, the major story of, of the nativity that God loved us enough to send his son because he recognized that we're sinners in need of a savior. That's the major story of Easter, that Jesus died to take the, the burden and the guilt of sin into himself to be the sacrifice for us. Um, and so I, I don't want us to miss the value of these seasons of preparation and confession and repentance um, because I think it's a kind of lost art or a lost practice for a lot of um, a lot of holiness folks who um, who need to be reminded from time to time even the even the the, the, the most sanctified among us if that's even a <laughs> if that's even a category um, that that we all are sinners in need of a savior and the good news is that we don't have to remain in our sin and that, Christ, uh, that, that Christ's work on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives can allow us to, you know, break free of, uh, God, that God can break us free of the grip of sin in our lives. It's not something that we do. It's something that we allow the Spirit to do in us. But, um, but here's, what, here's what I found. I'm sure you found this to be true as well as a pastor. Uh, Usually the most sanctified among us, to use that phrase again, uh, are, are the ones who are the quickest to acknowledge the, um, that God's still working on them and that they yeah. still have yeah. things that they need to, um, rough edges that they need to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to refine and, and uh, additional steps in the direction of Christ-likeness that they, that they need to take. And I think confession can serve a, uh, an important role in that process and Advent is a season just like Lent that calls us, I think, to that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I recall too, um, you know, this idea of confession was so often treated as a, uh, as an invitation to experience a crisis moment, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm at, I'm at the bottom of what I'm capable of doing myself. I need, I need assistance. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is the assistance that I will receive in order to reconcile me to God. Um, it, and certainly there's something to that, but, but I also remember, um, that so rarely did someone know what to do with that. Like sometimes it took a very clear altar call for someone to come to that moment in my little Nazarene church, that someone would come as a response where a pastor gave a very clear next step. Mm -hmm. But not always. I mean, sometimes I would hear people talking about their fear of the altar and, and how exposed they felt standing and responding to a, a call to have their sin forgiven. And something like Advent and Lent for me, you talked about the corporate nature of it. Um, my hope as a pastor is that it gives people an opportunity to do their work of confession without feeling like they're standing out as someone who doesn't have it together. Mm -hmm. But if we're doing this together, and we're taking it seriously, the fact that I'm looking around and seeing people who are, who are just holy people of God uh, participating in this act of yearning for God, preparing for God, seeking forgiveness for God, uh, my hope is that it prepares people who don't have a language for it, a grammar for it, don't know what to do next, can sign, kind of 
fit themselves into the process of what the church is doing and find that God is working through um, the ways that we're doing this together. And I will confess, I talked to Doug Hardy about this last week on the podcast, but this, this sort of thing really worked well for me as an extrovert because I didn't really want to go into these like quiet, individualistic, like peering into my soul moments. Like that just feels so introverted. <laughs> like I didn't want to do that stuff, but like when we're all in this together and we've got a common goal and a common aim and we're practicing something together, that's speaking my extroverted language as well. And so I've enjoyed some of that part of Advent and Lent and that it feels like we're in this together. And it's not just like me praying for three hours in the morning because I got up at four to beat the sun and God giving me a revelation because that doesn't really work for my personality. Right. But this corporate stuff does work for my personality very well. And, and you know, one of the arguments that, that I run into as a seminary prof and as a pastor when I talk to other pastors, um, I'll, I'll often hear you know, some pushback to some of these things that are embracing more historic worship practices or, you know, some of these things that are very familiar to other Christian traditions, but not as, not as indigenous perhaps to the Nazarene traditions, that it's not, um, that it's not seeker sensitive or that like people who don't really have a background in the church or in Christianity, you know, what they're going to think this is really weird. Why are they lighting these candles and this, what's up with the wreath? And, you know, they don't, they don't know where to find the book of Isaiah and the Bible and why are we doing all of these these things are these just like traditions that you know just rituals that we do because this is what we've always done um and yet I've I my response to that pushback often is that um I do think actually <laughs> that that there there is there's a good chance that people who are really unchurched like really don't have much of a background with the Christian faith at all are um, like that whatever mental picture of Christianity that they have, it probably actually is a little bit more like some of those traditional historic things, because that's what's off, most often depicted like in the movies and on TV. You know, most of the churches that you see in any kind of uh, popular media are going to be Catholic churches, much mm -hmm. more of the pomp and circumstance and ritual. Um, you know, truly unchurched people, like they could care less whether you're singing the latest song by Chris Tomlin or David Crowder elevation, but like they've probably, they probably have heard some of the old hymns at, at their grandma's funeral or something. Right. Amazing yeah. grace. Yeah. 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 So don't, don't try to convince me that like doing these things are not seeker sensitive. Um, the, but the other, the other aspect of it is that it's that these things can be highly participatory, uh, including, like you said, the practices of confession. So what we're doing is creating a way for people who may not even really believe yet or 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 who don't know the you know they don't know the grammar yet they don't know what it what what christian worship really means or is but we're inviting them to begin to like enter into those practices that then i think um can become meaningful as they give themselves over to them and i've seen that happen on the local level where somebody with very little religious background um starts coming to church and you know, because we put the words up on the screen and we say the Lord's prayer together, they start saying the Lord's prayer and they're not a believer yet. They don't know what, they don't know how to pray yet. But, the, but, but what we're doing is like sort of sub, subliminally, but even explicitly like teaching them how to pray. We're putting the words in their mouths that they don't yet know how to, how to articulate. Yeah. And then they see us receiving communion and they say like, 
well, what is this all about? I want to, I want in on this. I don't really know what it is or what it means yet, but I, but I feel drawn to it, you know? Yeah. And I think that yeah. that can be highly seeker sensitive or, you know, uh, guest minded when it comes to like unchurched people. I don't think that it's alienating in the way that some people think that it is. And I, yeah. and I, I think even the arguments about maybe it's not, you know, it's not trendy or it's not cool. It's not what young people are looking for. I mean, again, I, I'm a, I'm a seminary professor, but in a town where we have a college and we have, you know, several thousand undergraduates who live in my little town. And it's, it's interesting to me how many of them that are, you know, 18 to 22 years old, um, many of whom grew up in pretty hip contemporary churches are finding themselves um, enriched and nourished by more kind of traditional historic Christian practices like confession, like the observance of the calendar, like the sacraments, communion, baptism, um, more, more kind of scripted prayers or written prayers um, by the kind of art and the poetry of historic Christian practices. And as a worship guy, as a worship leader, I'm all, what I'm always looking at is, uh, you know, there's a kind of, I have, I have my eyes pointed in two directions at once um, that, you know, one is how do we most faithfully worship the, the God who is the audience of one for what we're doing in worship? What is going to be pleasing to the heart of God? And what can we do that's faithful to give God the glory that God is due? Because that's first and foremost why we're gathered for worship. But then the, my, my other eye is in the direction of how are these practices uh, able to be leveraged for the, for the formation and the transformation of those of us who are here gathered? Because that's what God wants to do is take the offering of worship that we get, that we offer up to him and then use it to nourish and enrich and transform us and send us back out into the world to be Christ's body. And so practices, you know, for me, it's like, it's, it's all, uh, it's all fair game. You know, it's like what anything from the history of, <laughs> of Christian practices and Christian worship, like if it can be meaningfully leveraged for our for our individual and corporate transformation, then I want to explore it. I want to try it and see how it goes. And it yeah. may not all work as well in every congregation as it does in another congregation. I'm all, all for contextualizing these things and trying to um, be sensitive to, you know, the, the personality and DNA of every local congregation and community. But um, I, I at least have observed some trends that would, that would indicate that there's a real openness to these things uh, in, in maybe an unprecedented way, at least for us holiness folks to say, wow, this is, this is really, um, this is special. This is meaningful. And it's helping me, it's helping my, um, my focus this time of year where there's so many distractions. It's helping, um, uh, again, when we practice Lent well, and then we move into Easter and Holy Week and we have Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning after a, a Palm Sunday the previous week, you know, that it just helps people feel like they're entering into this story that's bigger than them. And I think that that can be really powerful uh, and that God can use that to really um, shape them and shape their, their, not just their theology, but their spirituality, their, their, their love relationship with Jesus. Yeah. I saw, um, you know, just another post-mortem this week of another celebrity pastor who's fallen and this particular postmortem uh, was written by someone outside of the faith, maybe had a history in Christianity, but admits they're not currently practicing and probably not even particularly interested in practicing. But 
in their postmortem, um, uh, they're talking about um, Rolex watches and hanging out with celebrities and, you know, everything being cool guy trend and super rich and how much money the church designated to salary and blah, 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 all these kind of things that, you know, kind of make my stomach churn just a little bit. Kind of like, kind of like the, um, the exit point that this person, this, this, this unchurched non-Christian person who understands Christianity, but is not interested. Basically their, their, their exit point was when I look at all of this celebrity culture within the church and I see that it is 90 plus percent exactly like the way I live my life with 90 plus percent of the same values, I ask myself, why in the world would I ever want to be a part of this? What, yeah. what's, what at all is attractional to something that looks just like my life is now and leads to falls like this? And I thought, man, if that isn't a call, even a prophetic call, even if it's not from within the church, but a prophetic call to us to remind us that, you know, just every once in a while, we can be different than the culture yeah. and that's okay. And yeah. that might actually be in a world where culture is overwhelming and we see everywhere. I mean, just not, we're not gonna make this political, but people on the left and right are articulating their struggles, like in very loud ways. Mm -hmm. Culture is not working for everyone right now. So why is it we want our church to look exactly like that, where mm -hmm. there are people who are confessing that they're breaking under the constraints of the culture maybe being a little different every once in a while isn't that bad of a thing for the church. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is, uh, I, th I think we're going to get around to this sooner or later, but the theme of joy, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the, one of the themes for, for this week of Advent that we want to focus on is joy. And uh, I'm, I'm, I guess it's not plagiarism if I cite my sources, but my, my dad is who I've mentioned is a pastor. Um, he, he had a, a sermon series that I remember probably because of the alliteration um, when I was a kid uh, and I can't remember how old I was, but I just remember his sermon series about joy and that joy was, this is how he came up with the, the, uh, the alliterative de definition of joy was the committed Christians contagious characteristic. <laughs> joy <laughs> is the committed Christians contagious characteristic. And that stuck with me all these years. I mean, it's not like I heard him preach that sermon or that series, you know, over and over. It was just one time when I was a kid. Um, but, but that, that phrase has stuck with me. And I think there's some, some truth to that. And that's a way that we can be different than the culture, right? That um, to me, joy is not, um, not contingent upon circumstances, um, it's different from just the emotion of, of happiness, you know, things can make me happy and then something can turn around and make me sad in the next moment. And, but the, but the, but the contagious characteristic of the committed Christian is that we can, we can have joy through all of that, whether I'm happy in the moment or sad in the moment or mad or grieving or frustrated or annoyed or distracted or whatever, that I can still choose to have joy have the joy of the lord and that's something that we sing about at this time of year you know joy to the world the lord is come yeah. that's weird grammar but it's not insignificant grammar right um we sang that this morning at my church third sunday of advent um if you would have asked me again that you know my own journey of the of my understanding of advent and the layers of meaning of advent has been you know maybe i'm kind of a late bloomer and slow to slow to come around to finally getting it. But if you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, 
should we sing Joy to the World during Advent? I probably would have said like, no, that's a Christmas song. But if you look at the lyrics of Joy to the World, it doesn't say anything about Jesus being born. It's, it's really a second coming song. And it's very appropriate to sing during Advent because, you know, there's that third verse that sometimes we, we leave out because it's a little weird uh, in contemporary churches to sing the the verse about no more let sin and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. Um, that, that didn't happen when Jesus was born 2000 years ago. There's still thorns that infest the ground. Sin and sin and sorrows still grow right now. That's pointing ahead to when Jesus comes again and we get to experience a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation restored by love and, and uh, over which Christ will reign and we will live eternally as citizens of that new reality where no more will sin and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Well, right now we're still living in the reality of, of where the curse is found, far as the curse is found. But when we sing those words, we're, we're pointing ahead to his second coming. And because we believe that, we can have joy sincere joy, even in the midst of, you know, an epically terrible year of 2020, you know, with COVID and with all the kind of social and political upheaval that we've experienced in our lives and um, the strain that that's placed on relationships. And um, I mean, it's just been a rough year, but I, I would like to think that the thing that can set Christians apart is that we can continue to exhibit demonstrate live out joy in the midst of of all of that you know i don't know where you where you've seen that uh in your in your local congregation tim i'm sure you've got some great examples in our seminary um family my the president of wesley seminary colleen durr um her father was a general superintendent of the wesleyan church so he's this well-known well-beloved leader in their denomination um to make a long story short, um, Colleen's mother-in-law came down with COVID. Her, Colleen's husband, went to visit his dying mother, who was in her 80s, and he contracted COVID, brought it home, and it went, it basically went, ripped through their whole family. And within a couple of weeks, Colleen's husband was in the hospital for several weeks with really severe COVID-19. And, um, while he was in the hospital, his mother passed away and Colleen's father, the retired general superintendent, passed away with because of complications related to COVID. And, um, you know, and they were all separated from each other because of the hospitalizations and the quarantine and all of that. Um, while they lost, you know, the matriarch on one side and the patriarch on the other side of the family and all of the, you know, they have four kids. And so they'd lost these grandparents, the beloved grandparents. And yet it was just so, such a testimony to me to see the way that that family endured that grief and that those trials uh, with a sense of gratitude for God's presence in their lives, sustaining them through all of that, uh, the gratitude and, and, and joy and thanksgiving for, for lives well lived uh, for the Lord and both of those, those uh, two, you know, parents that they lost and, uh, just, you know, to, to, to watch their Facebook posts and to interact and get updates from them uh, in the midst of, of all of that, you know, it was just a real reminder that 
um, that we can have joy and that, you know, that even in the face of death, that Christians die well because we, you know, we don't believe that death has the last word. And that's the, that should be the source of our joy, not our circumstances uh, that we can just see in the present moment. Yeah. Happiness fits right in with, uh, with sadness, right? Like the circumstances, they come and go, right? We'll be happy and we'll be sad, but, but to have this, this, this underguarding joy throughout that's rooted in a story that we believe has already been written in Christ in anticipating his reign allows us, allows us to bring our circumstances that, that create honest to goodness emotion, fair and reasonable emotion. There is there is, like um like the bird song taken from the Old Testament says there is a season for all of these different things right yeah. there is a season for sadness and death and hurt right what do we do with it do we let that internalize into our our story or do we take this process that uh, that we're given also from the Old Testament of lamenting like take the stink be honest about it experience the grief of the hard times, but it doesn't have to rob your joy, right? Like it, like it can be a dark season, but what do you do with that? And my hope is that we're learning in seasons like this to bring it to God, to tell this story to God, let God receive um, that, that we're even frustrated and angry and find that it doesn't like knock us off, off kilter of the kind of person that God is trying to form us to be as his children that joy can exist even when sadness feels like it's raining. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, as I've been thinking about this too, as a, as a parent, you know, one of the things that frustrates me at, at Christmas time, and it, it probably doesn't help too, that two of my children have birthdays not long before Christmas. Um, so they've just had this season where they've like gotten a bunch of presents. Right. And then it's Christmas time, just a month or two later, two months for one of them, one month for the other. Um, is uh, it's made me keenly aware as a parent of how how malformative the way our culture celebrates christmas is in the lives of my children because again it's like it seems like it's all about their happiness and 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 their happiness depends on like if they get what they want if they get what's on their christmas list right and if they don't or it's not the exact right thing like oh i wanted i don't know i'm just gonna make something up but you know like oh i wanted nba 2k21 and this is 2k20 or whatever i don't know i wanted this pair of nikes not that pair of nikes you know then their happiness is out the window um now their happiness has turned to (laughs) lament you know um because it because the culture seems to tell them like this whole season is all about you being happy (laughs) with the presents that you receive even though like it's all gratuitous right like it's all like it, you didn't earn any of this stuff that Santa brings that, you know, <laughs> that mom and dad and grandma bought you or whatever. Right. Like it's all more than you deserved or that you earned. And it, you know, why can you not just be grateful and have joy that like, you know, that you got anything, but the culture is so, is so um, oriented according to another story, you know, and that is a story about acquisition. That's a story about, abundance and scarcity that's a story that you know that ultimately is driving me to put myself first uh and to fear other people you know because it's because it's a zero-sum game you know where if if like if i have some if i have stuff that means that somebody else doesn't or whatever 
Um, that's so contrary to the Christian story. Um, and again, these are things that, you know, we can't, we can't pretend like we can just sort of sail above all of that in, you know, in our lives. Like we're, we're, we're caught in those tensions, you know, between being citizens of the world we live in and citizens of the kingdom of God. And so the best I think we can do is just be, begin to be aware of where those tensions exist, the different directions that they're pulling us in, the different allegiances that they're calling us to, and, and choose to emphasize with intention the ones that are pointed in the direction of Jesus and in the yeah. direction of the kingdom. And it doesn't fully replace all of the things you're talking about. But for me, one of the ways that I've tried to parent in this tension is to be really, really intentional with my kids about the joy that giving mm-hmm. creates, whether that's um, serving somehow or being really, really thoughtful, intentional with what we choose for mom or what we choose for grandma or our aunts or whatever, and and try to stir within them as much joy seeing the joy that they give someone as what they receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something I, my, my, I the, like just the best parents, but it didn't catch on with me because I can be thick headed well until I was an adult, how much fun it is to, uh, how much more fun it is, I think, to see that I, I figured my wife out this year <laughs> and got her like without her asking, but just kind of like read between the lines and and got the perfect thing that gives me way more joy than opening any present yeah way more joy and um and so just just being willing to find moments to serve and to give through the season and to and to take the opportunity to let that be the formative part of this month when i participate in the cultural aspects of christmas that has done wonders for my soul as opposed to making a list and hoping that I get what's on it, right? As if that's what's going to finally make me okay. And it, you know, like that didn't just happen when I became an adult. That that took some <laughs> shifting and growing. But but it for me, it's been a difference maker. Focusing on the gift giving and being really thoughtful about who is this person, and and trying to demonstrate in some way that I know you and I love you. And then seeing that land means way more. It really does. And I'm not trying to sound like holy or whatever, but it really does. It lands better for me than getting a good gift. Yeah, and yeah. so that's that's been my way of participating in the culture as is, uh, but also, also trying to find uh, new ways in order to, um, to, to, to make it right, at least in some way. So... So as we head out, as we head out today, I want to talk about something that you and I both love and a fondness that you and I both share, and that is uh, finding Christian theme in pop culture. Yeah. Uh, for those who are listening, who are still listening at this point, uh, <laughs> probably probably worth noting that um, I I wrote a doctoral dissertation on uh, engaging pop culture as a Christian, and you were my uh, first reader and uh, advisor through that. So. We definitely share a love of pop culture and uh, seeing what we can find in terms of Christian theme in pop culture. And so I thought with these themes of joy and Advent, and particularly I've been trying to steer this to talk about how to practice Advent when you're not fully sure what it is and you're kind of learning about it. But I was wondering if you could share with us, Brandon, maybe uh, either a couple of uh, movies or songs that you might think uh, really had an Advent theme to it, or maybe just even like, 
how to go about engaging in stuff that we're watching and think about it with it with an eye of the Christian story in, in order to find themes beyond just the Hollywood themes, but but really try to find Advent themes that 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 nourish our soul even through our uh, exposure to pop culture. Yeah, I um, I was trying to think of uh, you know it's always hard when you're when you're doing this and you don't really know your audience about how to make appropriate recommendations. Yeah, for absolutely. Um, but uh, I, I started thinking about uh, there, there's a, I think one of my favorite Advent movies um, has to be the, uh, the film adaptation of uh, it's a, it's a novel by PD James, actually the British uh, mystery writer, but she, she wrote this. It's kind of a departure even in her body of literature. So if you're a, no, if you're a, if you're a novel reader, by all means, check out the novel, but there's a film adaptation from a few years ago of her novel, Children of Men. And um, it's, I, I don't want to spoil much, but I mean, it's a, it's kind of a dystopian um, future where the, the human race, there hasn't been a child born in the, in the human race. There's been this kind of epidemic of sterilization and humans have like lost the ability to reproduce around the globe. And then there's, uh, there, there, there comes a, a rumor of a of a miraculous conception that's taken place, and then the efforts to uh, confirm and then protect that uh, that possi the possibility of an expectant mother uh, who might bring a child into this um, this kind of despairing <laughs> and dark future where we've, through our own devices, kind of um, it, it, you know in uh, created mass infertility um it's it's a kind of gritty movie i, I think it's r-rated um because of violence and and uh you know there's some things in it that uh you know you, you might not want to watch with the kids but um read the novel or check out the the film uh clive owens is the the star that's the one you're looking for if you look there might be more than one movie called children of men i don't know but um that one came to mind groundhog day came to mind uh, just because of the 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 kind of uh, frustrated longing for like Bill Murray's character to kind of break out of that loop. I mean, that's one that so many people at this point have seen. Yeah, the early '90s, I guess. Um, and you know, that's just one of my kind of all-time favorite movies in general. But like, it 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 rings differently in Advent when you're thinking about those themes of like longing and waiting and anticipation and despair and hope. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, maybe if you haven't seen that one in a long time, it, it's, it might be worth revisiting, and, and particularly with kind of putting your Advent goggles on and thinking about what does this have to do with, you know, with Advent, uh, with, um, with these themes that we're focused on this time of year. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of movies and shows that, um, that, that are expressing, I mean, a lot of love stories, of course, that are expressing, you know, this this kind of yearning for a relationship to finally kind of work out. Um, I think that's why there's so many holiday movies that are kind of romantic comedies and there's some, you know, there's some good ones. This yeah. Time. It's truly amazing. Isn't it? How people yeah. use Christmas to tell a romantic comedy story. Hallmark yeah. has a whole industry and it's, it's always a love story, which is just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I just saw, I just saw something about how Slater from Saved by the Bell is going to be, Colonel Sanders in this, uh, in this like sort of uh, semi-autobiographical romantic story called 
recipe for seduction or something like that where it's like <laughs> it's yeah. the historical yeah. colonel sanders love story i haven't seen it yet i'm not recommending it listeners yeah. but um you know this is there's lots of ways to view those stories through the lenses of of longing and anticipation and waiting and expectation and um so those are just a few few movies that that come to mind what about you you got any for me well, you, you know, um, one of the things I've noticed, I, I don't know if it quite fits into Advent, but I've noticed that Hollywood has fallen in love with resurrection as a theme over the last 10 or 20 years. And it's not quite Advent, but like, I think of like the Matrix movies and Harry Potter and, uh, and I just think about how the, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but like the main character who's treated as messianic all the way through dies and comes back to set things right and there is a little bit of advent in that but it's it's truly amazing that when i was a kid one of the undertones of what was talked about in the church before matrix or harry potter and this stuff came around was like how unreasonable the idea of resurrection is and so like you've kind of like got to suspend your disbelief and just trust that god has done this and will do it and now Hollywood is just loving this concept of, of the world will kill the pure and good character who has come to save us, mm -hmm. but that's not the end of the story. And so um, it, it just seems to be a theme that's making its way into a lot of things. Um, I thought of Star Wars as well. The first movie is A New Hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, with each trilogy that came along in Star Wars, there is... Uh, essentially a, an unaware child who comes to an awareness of expectation on their life and, and a galaxy's worth of expectation on them. Mm -hmm. And um, sort of like maybe the Maccabees in, uh, in the, the text in between, Anakin didn't live up to this messianic, right? But, but yeah. Luke, Luke did, right? And Luke finds out his father was a power beyond you know, and, and I think, I think Jesus had a little bit more awareness. I don't think he became aware of his messianess, but, but there is this sort of messianic thought process around the Skywalkers and even Ray in the latest one. And, and what kind of, what kind of order can be restored to a chaotic uh, galaxy in the hopes placed on these Jedi children. I think there's something there to be found as well. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned star Wars. Cause my, my family is just finally catching up with <laughs> it seems like the rest of the world and dipping into the Mandalorian and it's on Disney plus and it's kind of a star Wars prequel side story that, um, that is, is, you know, baby Yoda has become this cultural icon now because of the Mandalorian um but in the story he's never baby yoda he's the child and the mandalorian is you know it begins trying to find him in it because it, there's a bounty on on the child uh and then ends up becoming his protector we're we're only four or five episodes into the first season and now i think there are two seasons but uh i, I was i've been thinking about that this week as we've watched those first several episodes um i'm like this is really good advent kind of fodder as well and as we uh, go further with it. We, I haven't really used it yet and done the, my kids are so used to me being, you know, their, their theologian pastor dad, who's like, okay, now let's talk about what we, <laughs> you know, what we've learned in this movie that we watched together and making them debrief with me about the themes and the characters and the plot. And, you know, cause not only again, am I 
theologian, but an English major. So we have to talk about narrative and, <laughs> and, and, and conflict and resolution and denouement and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but the, the Mandalorian might be worth putting your advent goggles on uh, as, you, as you watch that series as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Home Alone works too in a lot of ways. <laughs> I love Home Alone, but, uh, but you're kind of working towards what you know is this eventual outcome between the, the thieves and Kevin. But so many of the, the stories that wind their way through that are just unbelievable to me, particularly the church scene when he runs into the man that he thinks is a killer. Yeah. Right. Neighbor. And it turns out that he is just as broken a human as anything Kevin has in his own family. The family itself is difficult. Kevin is also a very much a dynamic character who's redeemed. I mean, he's a, he's a snot, yeah. right? Like, like you just want to backhand the kid, but there, there's something, there's something redemptive about his story as yeah. well. Um, he, he ends up protecting the family. The family doesn't even realize that, that their livelihood is in danger <laughs> and Kevin steps in and protects them and doesn't even disclose to them that what he has done yeah, in order to save them, you know, but, but more than all of that, that you could work with just that scene in the church where Kevin has a prophetic word to this old man and the old man has a prophetic word to this young boy. And there's all sorts of possibility about the church. Oh, there's, there's just like one of the best scenes ever for me is that church scene in home alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, it, I, I can't go through this season of, of the year without watching It's a Wonderful Life and mm -hmm. uh, just one of my all-time favorites. And it's just, I mean, just from a cinematic standpoint, it's an amazing film too, the way that it kind of has this, you know, dark film noir detour through the whole middle third, middle, you know, the second act. And, um, but that that whole story of, of um, redemption and of him being given a chance to kind of see how different the world would be uh, if, if George Bailey hadn't, you know, um, hadn't been part of, of the life of, um, of uh, Bedford Falls. Is that what it Bed is? Yeah, Bedford Falls. Yeah. Um, and, and not only that, that goes so to this idea that we're talking about of, of joy. His circumstances don't change. Like, like if his circumstances change, it's because all of the people he's helped help him back, right? right. His circumstances, don't, he's still like the building and loan man. He's still shackled to Bedford Falls. All of the things that he think has ruined his life, that's not removed. Like he still has to go and be Mary's husband and the father to Zuzu and the protector of the people of Bedford Falls from Potter. Like he's okay. like all of the things that drive him crazy don't disappear, right? Yeah. But he finds a renewed joy in the circumstance. Yeah. I agree with you. I love yeah. that. I even love that. even before even before they all show up and start dumping money on the table, like his yep. his perspective has already changed because of that experience with Clarence the Angel revealing to him the you know the the possibilities of of a world without George Bailey if he'd fallen through the ice instead of you know saved his brother or whatever. Um, the uh, so that one's that's a good one. And I mean, there, I would just encourage people. I mean, we we haven't touched on music, and we I, I know you and I could go on and on about this stuff, but. Um, several years ago at my, my previous church, no, this isn't why they ran me off or anything, but during Advent one year, we, uh, at the beginning of each service, we started with a, a cover of a secular song that was about waiting and anticipation. And we, I, I'm remembering that we did Mumford and Sons, uh, I will wait, I will wait for you. Um, and we did, uh, Tom Petty's The Waiting is the Hardest Part, and, uh, you know, we, we, we were trying to be pretty on the nose with the, you know, the themes of 
longing, anticipation, waiting. Um, but again, just be listening for that as you listen to the radio. I mean, it's, it's there. And, you know, I have this, at least my, my posture, and I, I know Tim shares this, you know, my posture towards pop culture is that, um, is really premised on the notion that like all human creative endeavors are a reflection of the fact that we're created in the image of a creator. So regardless of the content of of the creative work, you know, whether it's like explicitly sort of anti-God or anti-religious, you know, sacrilegious content or explicitly religious content, take that all out of the equation that when human beings are creating art, creating something new, bringing something new into the world, they're, they're acting out of the kind of the Imago Dei, the image of God in who, in whose image they were created because that God is first and foremost creator of heaven and earth. And so we're tapping into that creativity. And, and therefore, I think God can always speak through it and reveal something to us through it, regardless of the content that any human creative endeavor that, that with those with kind of eyes to see and ears to hear who are, who are expecting God to speak through our encounters with art, with movies, with music, with whatever kind of cultural creative artifacts, that it, it doesn't take any real like effort, so to speak, on God's part to reveal something to us through that. Because again, regardless of the content, it's, it's, it's all derived from that kind of original creative impulse that's within us because we're created in the image of a creator. And so I think if we'll just kind of tune into that frequency and expect that God is going to speak, that God will and and whether we're listening to secular radio or whether we're listening to k-love whether we're watching you know some some of the you know christian kind of movies that are that are more explicitly religious this time of year or whether we're watching you know just secular popular television and movies that you know that god wants to speak to us through those things and and god is able to speak to us through those things if we'll allow him and so um you know just whatever whatever you're tuned into at this time of year, if you'll just kind of take the extra effort to put your advent goggles on and just say, you know, God, use this to, you know, give me some deeper insight into who you are or who you are calling me to be or how, where you want my focus and my attention to be this time of year. Uh, the novels that we read, you know, the, the media we consume, the conversations that we have uh, while we're out shopping, whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think God can use that. And one of the most easy ways to do this, if, if one is willing, is maybe just take a piece of paper, going into a movie and write down some of the themes of Advent, waiting, preparation, hope, love, joy, peace, these different things that we talk about, and just write those words on. And then as you're watching, take stock of when these things appear. What, what are the characters hoping for? What are they longing for? Do I sh and then afterwards, like, do I share in these longings? Did, was this meaningful to me? Did I feel their longing? and dig into some of the emotions like movies, music. Um, I mean, you could do this with the new Taylor Swift album if you wanted to, right? Like they're, they're trying to, um, like nonfiction tries to teach you facts, right? Like movies and art are trying to touch your senses and your emotions. And some of these Advent words are evocative emotional words. Mm -hmm. And for people like me who aren't necessarily as emotionally driven, 
but I still have emotions, right? And so sometimes a movie touches an emotion in a way that real life doesn't with me. Like someone has to tell me that it was an emotional moment sometimes. Like, oh my, why is my wife crying right now? I like, what, what happened, right? It, it doesn't occur to me necessarily. Um, but, but, but these movies tap into emotions that it doesn't occur to me to feel. And then I feel them. And sometimes taking stock of why, especially in light of these Advent themes may really help me come into contact with, with God in a way that my normal practices just wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. There's even a, a, a you know, if we really want to get nerdy for 30 more seconds, I mean, there's even, I think a, a, a structural level, I'll call it that on which this, this can be meaningful. And it's that, you know, I think our engagements with fiction, especially again, whether it's TV, movies, um, novels, um, you, you use this phrase a minute ago and it, it, it's, it's from Samuel Taylor Coleridge that enter, entering into fictional narratives or imaginative worlds requires the willing suspension of disbelief. And, and Coleridge uses that, coins that phrase and says, you know, the, the willing suspension of disbelief that constitutes poetic faith. That he, <laughs> Coleridge was a religious thinker as well as a, a poet in his own right. And, and I've come to believe that, like, again, if we, if we kind of give ourselves over to it, if we're really engaged when we're entering into kind of fictional worlds and it's training us to, like, willingly suspend our disbelief, to, to buy into the story that we're inhabiting, even if it's as outlandish as Star Wars or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or whatever, um, or even if it's as mundane yet, fa you know, fantasy as Groundhog Day, right? That, that there's something about that that is actually training us in what's required at a certain level of religious belief, right? Yeah. That like, there we have, we like the belief in a virgin birth, like we have to suspend our, our tendencies to doubt that that could be right to actually accept it to be true. And so, no, I'm not saying that there's like an equivalency between fictional narratives and like the biblical story, but there's something about our participation in fictional narratives that I think like helps teach us what is required to really exercise faith Coleridge calls it poetic faith so it's distinct from religious faith right but there's a there's a parallel there's a kind of analogy between them that I think can be really helpful no matter what again the content of the story is that our participation in these kind of fictional worlds of the screen or the page or whatever um, help train our imaginations to um, to be able to exercise faith in things like the resurrection of Jesus and the virgin birth um, that, that I think can be helpful. Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us this week. This has been a rich conversation and you blessed me. I think you'll bless our congregation as well who listen to this. Thank you so much, Brandon, for joining us and, and sharing your expertise and your thought. And whether from a theoretical point of view as a professor or a, or a practical pastor point of view, uh, you just really, really helped us this season. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure.
Thank you for joining us for Through Life's Crossroads. This has been a ministry of Crossroads Church with Pastor Jake and Pastor Tim. We encourage you to continue to engage with us online throughout the week on Facebook at Crossroads Church of the Nazarene and also on Instagram, Crossroads Naz Church. Thanks for joining us for this episode.